If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. BitcoinProsperityPodcast.com. So the only thing left is to inflate it away. Well, how do you inflate it away? Well, you can't generate inflation in a deflationary world. Technology is deflationary and too many old people are deflationary. So you have to devalue the currency. And that's the only way. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's why Bitcoin in US dollars is a sure thing. Because you can't say that. Like, yeah, I can actually. Because if we increase the number of US dollars right, to an infinite level, and we know there's a finite number of Bitcoin, actually a decreasing amount of Bitcoin, it's got a deflationary, uh, some people lose it because they don't talk to you guys for security. And uh, so you end up with a deflating numerator and an infinite in, uh, uh, denominator, um, that means really high prices over the long term for, for a single Bitcoin. So I get pretty excited about the long term. Now, the short term is just noise, right? Buyers and sellers. But over the long term, the amount of capital that's going to flow into this opt-out insurance, I think is going to be quite dramatic. Welcome to the Bitcoin Prosperity Podcast with your host, Gordon, that's me, and Ferris from CoinCompass.com, enabling you to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins. All resources are in the show notes and description, including our full disclaimer. Visit BitcoinProsperityPodcast.com to subscribe and discover other free content. Okay. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. We have a special podcast today, Bitcoin Prosperity Podcast. But before we get to that, let's do the proof of recording, because as we know, that is important. So we are at block 6,627,871, according to blockstream.info. And the current price of Bitcoin is 7,692, according to Bitstamp. Faris, I'm in a partial lockdown at the beach, what's going on with you? So I'm still holed up in my bunker slash cottage in New Zealand. Um, and yeah, proof of recording uh, for the rest of us, it's uh, Monday, 27th of April, 4 p.m. UTC time. And we have a very special guest with us today. This is uh, someone's work I've been following for several years. So we have Mark Disco here today. Mark is the CEO and CIO and founder of Morgan Creek. Capital, capital management. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. No, thanks, Ferris. Thanks, thanks Gordon, Mark. for having me on and uh, excited to have the conversation today. Lot, lots to talk about. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, macro's back, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so in a minute, we would like to talk to you about Morgan Creek uh, Digital Assets. But uh, first of all, um, I'm going to let Gordon fire away the opening question before I uh, monopolize this. Well, Faris, I think you actually forgotten that he's the co-founder and part of Morgan Creek Digital as well. So uh, let's put that on the board. Mark, the boring but extremely important question, who is Mark Yusko and perhaps how and when you first heard about Bitcoin? Wow. So yeah, again, you're, you're right. It is, it is pretty boring, the backstory. I would say, you know, my life's just a series of happy accidents. I didn't really plan to get here, you know, I actually went to school thinking I wanted to be an architect, uh, punted on that, tried a couple different things, ended up graduating with a pre-med degree, uh, didn't go to med school, went to business school, uh, kind of fell into investing in a backhanded way. But throughout that career, 
uh, one thing or two things actually became pretty apparent with the benefit of hindsight. One was I had a tendency to, to hang out with the bad guys. And, and I say that tongue in cheek, but, but seriously in the sense that I found myself always gravitating toward new technology. You know, you think about who was the first person to use a pager, it was the drug dealers, and who was the first person to really use the internet, it was porn. And I think the same thing here now we have with, with Bitcoin and, and crypto is the first users quote unquote, we're, we're on the fringe. But that's true of every new technology in history. So that's just been part of my investment career as I've gravitated towards new technology and it always tends to be, to be at the fringe. Uh, the second thing that I, I found was that uh, I liked this idea of innovation as an asset class. And if you think, and this is actually my pinned tweet on Twitter, that if you think about all the great wealth, right, it's all created by investing in something that you believe in before most people even understand. And now that's really sounds really good. The problem is actually doing it and that's harder. And so the question you ask about the first time I, I heard about Bitcoin, um, you know, I actually had it served up on a silver platter, not, you know, all the way back to 2008, 2009, um, when it was just being talked about and discussed and then launched. Uh, I would say, you know, I wasn't dealing drugs on Silk Road. I wasn't a cryptography student. Didn't hear about it early, early, early. But in 2013, which, you know, is a long time ago in the Bitcoin world, a good friend of mine, Dan Moorhead, called up and said, hey, I'm, I'm shutting down my macro fund. We've always been big investors in macro hedge funds. And we were one of his first investors back 13 years ago when he spun out a tiger. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm setting up two funds, a Bitcoin fund and a blockchain infrastructure fund. And I was like, Bitcoin, well, I've heard of it. I don't really get it. Said I wasn't involved. I was knowledgeable of the fringe at that time, but not really involved. And uh, so I said, all right, fine. I'll skip the Bitcoin fund, but, but infrastructure, picks and shovels, you know, the companies that are going to build out this, this big infrastructure around technology, I get that. Now, that first infrastructure fund's up about 11x. Nobody is unhappy with that outcome. But I should have put the money in the Bitcoin fund because it's up about 150x. So the first of my many bad decisions in crypto. But that was the first time I really spent meaningful time thinking about it was the, the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I recall on Real Vision where Dan Moorhead's um, talking with uh, Wenza Cesaris of Zappo. And Wenza said the exact same thing. So you're better off investing in Bitcoin than in my own company. And he was the one who launched one of the first exchanges. Yeah. And again, Zappo was one of the first investments in Dan's fund. And, you know, we made a nice return on Zappo and Corbett and another exchange. And it's been fantastic. But clearly, Wences is right. And the problem, though, was at the time, you, know, you go back and you think about that time. Um, you know, Bitcoin was selling a couple hundred bucks. And it really wasn't well thought of, first of all, right? Because we, uh, we had just been through the collapse from $1,000 and it really wasn't spoken about in terms of, of mainstream adoption. It was kind of the cypherpunks and, and the Hal Finney acolytes, et cetera. And, you know, it wasn't something that a good normal investment person would spend his time on. Now, it got compounded about uh, nine months later, I actually wrote 
I write these long investment letters and I wrote one paragraph. Think about it, one paragraph, 41 page letter, one paragraph talking about Bitcoin as a special situation. Looked like an interesting opportunity, it was about $500. And funny thing is the next paragraph was about Saudi equities. Way more controversial, particularly given what happened with Khashoggi, et cetera. No one complained about that. But I had clients call me and say, hey, we'll fire you if you don't keep, if you keep talking about this magic internet money. So that really pushed it even further away because, well, if my clients don't want to hear about it, then why should I be spending my time on it? And thankfully, I, I did spend some time on it. I convinced a couple clients to buy in and I, you know, started investing with Dan and a few others. And and so while I, I didn't do what I should have done, which is, you know, lever up the house and, and put it all in Bitcoin, uh, I did at least start dipping a toe and then a foot and then an ankle. Um, but I wasn't smart enough to, to dive all in. Oh, we were all there. I mean, uh, Gordon told me about Bitcoin 2013, 14, and Mount Gox scared me off. Yeah. Um, that point there, you just reminded me, um, Steve Bregman said something very similar. He, um, when he spoke at the Grants conference, he didn't bring up Bitcoin at that time. And then he had a really fascinating series of interviews with Grant Williams, where he, I think, described Bitcoin really well. Why yeah. is there that fear to speak of Bitcoin? And why is it such a contentious issue? Well, I, mean, I think it goes back to the point I, I opened with, which is new technology, particularly when it's adopted by people on the fringe, tends to give it a bad name. I mean, you think about pagers, right, and cell phones. You know, those were, those were for really, really literally for the bad guys. And so the average person didn't want a cell phone or a pager because that was what drug dealers and, and eventually doctors had to have them too. And it kind of legitimized it. And so... What, what's interesting about this, and I think what, what the aha moment for me, and again, I wrote about this in a letter talking about my Eureka moment, happened actually to be in Eureka, California, kind of funny, um, driving a big RV with my family, and, and it just literally hit me. I said, whoa, 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 this is about technology. This is a technological innovation similar to the change in computing power that happens about every 14 years. I've never figured out why exactly it's 14 years. It has something to do with, you know, half of generation and young people are, who create new technologies or, you know, the, the fate of the computing power, Moore's loss. I, I, again, don't really know. But 68, you ha or 54, you had the mainframe. Then 68, you had the microchip. Then 82, you had the personal computer. 96, the internet. 2010, the mobile net. And 2024, okay, again, which is still four years away, is the trust net or the internet of value. And it's this use of blockchain technology as the operating system, the same way that DOS was the operating system for PCs and TCP IP was the operating system for the internet and iOS and Android are the operating system for the mobile net. Blockchain will be the operating system for this internet of everything or internet of value, what I call the trust net because blockchain becomes the source of truth. Triple entry accounting is the innovation. And so when you put all that together, you say, well, what's Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is the, the lubricant. It's the, the monetary system that allows this operating system to work uh, in the same way that, you know, the TCP IP base protocol 
functions as that base layer. And then we have FTP and SMTP and HTTP and www. on top of that. So once I had that epiphany and I said, oh, this is just technology, then it's not like, you know, buying something that drug dealers are using or that the terrorists are using. Although I have to laugh, right? And, and I think Katie from uh, A16Z says it best, right? She says, look, I was a prosecutor for 20 years. And given the choice between the bad guys using SACO money or SACO cash or putting their hands on a keyboard, I'll take the keyboard 100 times out of 100. So more terrorism, more drug deals are done with cash than Bitcoin by far. I mean, it's not even close. But that fringe perspective or, or reputation still exists. And that's okay because that gives us time to accumulate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember when credit cards, I mean, credit cards have been around for a long time. You know, you looked at the first diners card, I think it was. It was the same thing with credit cards. You know, oh, we're not going to take a credit card. That's, you know, people do bad stuff with that. And the same thing happened with internet banking. I actually used to work for a bank and uh, they were, you know, very, very hesitant about, you know, opening themselves up to internet banking. <laughs> Look at the banks now. I mean, uh, you know, it's all about internet banking. So yeah, this definitely happens at the fringes. But just going back to your point, and I'm not going to steal Faris's thunder because I know he wants to get into macro markets and stuff like that. But you mentioned, uh, you know, all the protocols like FTP, SNMP and TCPIP. So I'll give you a pop quiz. Who is Mark Crispin? Oh, now see, you didn't ask me Vince Cerf. So I'd say the inventor of TCPIP. You You didn't ask me Tim Berners-Lee, right? The inventor of the internet, first web page. You got me. I should know. Um, so, so he invented IMAP and SNMP and I uh, sorry SMTP and POP3. So email basically. Wow. So that's why I find it's fascinating because you have these people who've invented these amazing technologies and protocols, like Tim Berners Lee, but they're for one of the better. They're not rich. They're the not inventors. I mean, look, Tim's no, doing fine. No, Harvard professor. Yeah. You know, I don't know where where Mark is, but but he's probably doing okay. But right, they're not billionaires. And they could have been or should have been. But to your point, Gordon, all the wealth in those early days went to the applications developers, right? You know, Zuck. Yeah. Zuck is a billionaire. Why? Because he gave away a free service using this other free protocol that these other people developed. But free is never free, by the way, as we all have figured out. And there is a you know relationship of quality and cost in most things in life. Um, but that idea of free, everybody loves it, but then the application developer gathers up all that wonderful personal data and sells it off for a fortune. So genius business model, you know, really bad for those protocol developers. What I love about this new kind of web 3.0 is the fundamental layer, you know, the protocol layer is actually accruing value. Right? I mean, Bitcoin itself was the fastest company to $100 billion. It took IBM 40 years. It's not really a company. I mean, it's a network. Uh, so company, I misspoke. But as a network and a network of value, to reach $100 billion in nine years is pretty amazing. Um, with that, Mark, I do want to jump into the macro stuff. But um, yep. before we move on to there, Gordon, can you, we had a question just regarding um, industries and blockchain industries. Do you mind getting into details? So that's Gordon's a tech side on more the economics finance side. 
So question on, on which industries are, are interesting from a, a blockchain perspective? Yeah, so we were discussing this ourselves. So when you look at, I mean, we had the ICO bubble in 2017. Um, yep. Where do you see coming out of this, for example, and I, I know you've used the analogy of, you know, you did have Amazon and some companies that survived the tech bubble. Where do you see blockchain actually disrupting and what's just going to be part of the fad that won't rise again? Okay, great question. Okay, I got it. So, you know, we were very public. Uh, the team Moore Creek Digital was very public about staying away from the ICO boom. You know, basically an ICO, and particularly the way ICOs were done, is all you were doing is crowdsourcing pre-seed stage venture capital, which there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, pre-seed stage venture capital is an asset class. And the problem with it, though, is it has a 90-something percent loss ratio, meaning 96, 97, 98% of the pre-seed stage deals go away. And then they become seed stage or early stage. Uh, and venture capitalists can make a lot of money as good investors. But, but the, you know, funding an idea is, is fundamentally a risky business. The problem with the ICOs was it was worse than that because in a That's normal a corporate structure, you own something. The problem with the ICO is you didn't own anything. You owned a utility token. And we always use the, the simplistic example of Chuck E. Cheese, right? I issue Mark coin and you guys give me some money and I, I give you some Mark coin. I say, okay, I'm going to go build a bunch of Chuck E. Cheese like arcades. And then when I open up, you can come use the Mark coin uh, to to knock yourself out in the arcade. And that's great. You do get some utility from going to the arcade, but you would have been better off saying, well, hey, you're not going to be able to build those arcades without our money. So how come we don't own a piece of the arcades and a piece of the cash flow in the future? So the structure was bad. And so that that went away. And now we're today where your question is, where's the disruption or where's the next opportunity? And I think if, if I think about kind of web 3.0 or this internet of everything or internet of value, where I see the big opportunity is one in this creation of the, the protocol stack. So whether that's Bitcoin at the bottom and Filecoin on top and Cosmos or, you know, Polkadot, whatever it is, there'll, there'll be half a dozen that survive and they become the facilitators of the decentralized versions of old school things like email or credit cards. I mean, you know, someone's going to figure out how to do payment rails using, you know, Bitcoin or Lightning or something. And we've invested in a number of companies we hope be the ones that do, but they're not going to charge 3%, the monopoly that Visa and MasterCard have had for decades. And so that market cap's going to shift from those companies to these new companies the same way that the market cap shifted from IBM to Microsoft or Cisco or, or other things as the you know, technology evolution occurred. So we do think that blockchain technology has huge disruptive potential for creating this decentralized world, this world that relies on you know, independent verification. We don't need financial services, huge dislocation coming, huge disruption coming because if I have a dollar and I want to send it to you, Ferris, okay, you have to have a bank account. I have to have a bank account. The bank charges us a fee for the wire and the banks make a lot of money. Well, if I have a Bitcoin, I want to send it to you. I don't need a bank. You don't need a bank. As long as you have a wallet and I have a wallet, I can transfer that. Now, is free the right number? 
for global transfer of money across borders? Probably not, right? But 12% at Western Union is wrong and a couple percent or 3% 3, 3 for Visa or MasterCard is wrong and 1% and or half a percent for the bank is wrong. So we're going to have some level of, of value or revenue that, that gets embedded in these new solutions, but it's that blockchain technology at the core. Bitcoin, I think, is one use case today, digital gold. Can it be other things in the future? I think it can. I think it's more likely to be at the very bottom of the stack and other things occur to, to allow for more speed. You know, it's, it's like the old adage, good, fast, and cheap. When you're building a house, pick two. You can have it good and fast and it won't be cheap. You can have it good and cheap and it won't be fast. You can have it um, fast and cheap and it won't be good. So in a network, you can have speed or security. You can't have both. So I'd add decentralization to that mix as well. Yeah, yeah, like that too. Yep. Because you could have potentially you could have something yeah, no, we've, fast, um, but it's centralized. Several, yeah, we've had several conversations about this where Gordon describes Bitcoin being slow by design um, because it needs to be secure. Yep. And yeah, as you mentioned, we've done several presentations where you stand in front of a group, someone who's never had a Bitcoin wallet, you show them how to download a wallet send Bitcoins, and then you actually show them their transaction on the blockchain. And that's that eureka moment for them where it's like, oh, yeah. I see this thing working, now I get it. And when we say Bitcoin slow by design, when you're talking about a 10-minute settlement transaction, that's a lot faster than any banks in Western Union. Oh, it's, it's such a great, that, that's one of the best points I've heard in a long time, which is it seems slow compared to instantaneous, but when you compare it to a bank, which... We just came off the weekend, right? Couldn't do anything in the banks over the weekend. Nothing for 48 hours. So the idea that, or, you know, I've, I've had plenty of examples where I literally sent money to someone and for three days they couldn't access it because they had to verify. What do you have to verify, right? The data is on the ledger. I mean, it's just, they're playing the float game, but uh, that all goes away. And yeah, 10 minutes seems like an eternity in this, you know, I would say, in the old days, right, of, of uh, mail, snail mail, right? I would write a letter to my girlfriend. I would put a stamp on it, put it in the mail, go three days. She'd get it. She'd think about it for a day and uh, send me one back. And seven days would go by. My wife can't wait seven seconds for an answer to a text. Forget seven days. <laughs> seven seconds is too long. So, Mark, um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, Obviously, there's a lot going on in macro markets right now. And um, we spoke about this recently with Steve where, yeah, the whole COVID-19 um, epidemic was not probably, I don't know how you feel about this, it's not a black swan event. It's a spark that lit this whole debt-fueled binge that we've been on, which I know you've spoken about. Um, one analogy I love that you do is you were, because these trillion dollars numbers are thrown around and you said, and the last, I'm sure it's changed, but it was, you'd have to spend a dollar every second for, what is it, 30,000 years or something? I can't remember how you yeah. put it. So one, one trillion, just one, right? Forget two, three, four, five, six, but one trillion is a dollar every second for 31,710 years. And that's a that's a lot of spending. And so now we're flooding the markets globally with, you know, depending on how you count, two, four, six trillion. 
it all sounds like funny money, but for sure, you know, two trillion of fiscal stimulus is happening. The monetary stimulus, some of that's a little funny money because, you know, they put out a trillion dollars of repo availability, but they only had 17 billion of demand because everybody's already fully levered. So it sounds like a lot of money, but it, it, that's not going into the system, but it's there as a backstop. But, but let's just call it globally, you know, probably four or five trillion with a T dollars. And again, I'm off by 25% because uh, I can't, you know, it's all happening so fast. Uh, it's like when the, the Aramco, you know, IPO came out in uh, Saudi Arabia and they're like, well, it's, it's, you know, somewhere between one and two trillion is the fair value. Like you can't get closer than within a trillion dollars of the fair value. So, you know, we've, we've turned fiat currency globally, truly into funny money. And I think therein lies the big problem. And to your point about the spark and the Tinder is, look, and I'm very public on this and I, you know, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but, you know, COVID, it's not the problem, right? It's, it's a virus, but it's like every other virus threat that we face throughout millennia. And we've all we've survived every one, and we'll survive this one too. And you know, people started calling it the plague. The plague wiped out forty-two percent of humanity on the planet. This is going to go to 003 percent. So even using the word plague is just heinous. You can't even use the word, you know, Spanish flu because that was three percent of the world population, not 0.003%. So the, the order of magnitude is just so crazy, but, but it does, what COVID did do, is it created a smoke screen for the MMT crazies, most of them in the US, but also in Europe and Japan, the MMT acolytes that now believe that literally you can solve a debt problem with more debt. And if that were true, right, if it were true that we could solve the creation of wealth by simply printing money, simple question, wouldn't every country just do that? If, if all you had to do to create wealth was print money, wouldn't everyone just do that? And everybody says, oh, well, no, it, it only works in the Western world. <laughs> Why is that? Well, it only works in the central, in the, if you have the world reserve currency. Well, Japan doesn't have the world reserve currency and they've printed more money than we have. And their M2 growth is way higher than the United States. And Europe doesn't have the world reserve currency. <laughs> the Euro is definitely not the world reserve currency. And they have a larger, the ECB has a larger percentage of GDP on their balance sheet than the US. Although the US is doing a good job trying to catch up. But this whole idea that, that printing more fiat currency will create wealth is fallacious at its core, except in the short run, if excess dollars find their way through levered financial system into limited supply of securities, right? Because we've, we've limited the number of securities by taking many of the securities off the market onto central bank balance sheets, which I don't know when it happens, and I actually don't really want to be around when it does happen, but at some point, someone is going to say, 
wait a second, what's on the other side of the balance sheet? Literally, the emperor has no clothes. Like, if you think about the United States, for example, you say, oh, well, it has all this debt. Okay, that's fine. But the country has a lot of assets, right? We have mineral assets, we have intellectual property assets, we have land, we have national parks. I mean, there are a whole bunch of people around the world that would like to buy Yosemite National Park, right? They would actually literally buy that track of land for a lot of money. So countries can issue more debt than you think because they have assets backing it up. But central banks, I'm struggling but no one is willing to call BS or say, wow, that person really is ugly with no clothes. So it's a little scary. Do you want to learn how to safely buy and securely store your Bitcoins? Coincompass.com is running a free two-hour webinar on Sunday, 31st of May. To register and for more details, visit coincompass.com forward slash webinar. I was just going to say, Mark, there has to be a war on something. There's got to be a war on terror, war on drugs, war on this, war on that. There's got to be a war on viruses. Uh, and I said, it's my number one personal pet peeve. We are not at war. We are not under attack. But to your point, there has to be a war because war allows governments to exert war powers, which are prohibited by the checks and balance system created by the Constitution. And so if you go back to 9-11, what did we do? We created Patriot a war Act. on terrorism. But, but terrorism right. isn't an enemy combatant. You have to have an enemy combatant to have a war. You have to be under attack. There actually have to be attacks on your soil or on your assets. And to say, well, our friends in Israel or other places were being attacked of acts of terrorism or there was an attack of terrorism in New York City. Okay, but from then, there were no more attacks. So it's not a war, but with that war, by calling it a war, what it allowed us to do is say, okay, well, we're going to go after the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, even though they didn't exist. And this war allows us to pass the Patriot Act, which allows us to do more security and surveillance and violate constitutional rights. And now... Here we are, you know, I love how the, the, our current government calls it the invisible enemy. What are you talking about? It's not an enemy. It's, virus is not an enemy. And there is no one attacking us. And now they're trying to turn it into, well, China attacked us by releasing the virus. Like, well, first of all, you actually have no evidence that this is anything but a novel coronavirus, a zoonetic, you know, virus that came from an animal. There's actually no evidence or proof that it was a biological weapon. And even if there were proof, you'd have to prove where it came from, which is going to be tough. And you can't just point a finger and say it came from there. Therefore, you know, they're an enemy combatant. But by in so doing and declaring a war against the virus, now we're, exer- we're exercising war powers, like shutting down, you know, economies, like literally saying, this was a great one. Fortunately, it didn't pass, but the Justice Department you know, wanted to have the War Powers Act allow them to detain anyone indefinitely with no rights. So literally, you pick someone up for crossing the border and you could detain them indefinitely. 
no trial, no judge, no lawyer, no nothing. That's a frightening, frightening thought. Now, thankfully, it didn't happen, but that's the type of stuff that we've turned this whole situation upside down to create an illusion to stoke fear. And look, I'm not a big Michael Moore fan, but but I do love, there's a nine minute, I think it's nine minute section in um, his movie on GM, General Motors, where he goes back in time and does a retrospective on all of the um, dictators that were propped up by the Americans and then toppled later to create fear, right? And if you go back in time, right? My, when I was growing up there, you know, right before I was born, there was the, the Korean War. And then when I was born, there was the Vietnam War. And, you know, so to your point, we've always had to have, you're actually, you're sitting in Vietnam. So um, there's always- Undisclosed location in Southeast Asia, sorry. Yeah, no, that's no, great. But, but we've always had these, these situations that were created to foment fear that fear leads to giving up of rights to the government. And the one that I'm actually quite concerned about right now is using COVID, I call it the COVID world order, to allow for a complete surveillance and monitoring state. And, you know, there's even people who say, well, they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to force everyone to have a chip that proves where you are at all times so you can be tracked and that you have some health immunity to certain things. I mean, that just opens a Pandora's box of problems, but. Well, you actually don't need that because Google or Android and iOS are coming out with a uh, contract tracing in the next yeah. version of the operating system update. So you don't yep. even need a chip for that. Yeah. And then, that's what then, I've, yeah. I guess then we'll all have to just buy Huawei phones. That'll really piss them <laughs> off. I've got, I've got my, yeah. Well, I've got a Huawei phone actually, and I'm, I'm running a, version of android called graphene which is basically android without all the google there's no google stuff in it so it's I like it. um for those wanting a uh, private privacy solution head across the graphene but just to finish up mark and and talking about asymmetric warfare and having that boogeyman that's exactly what i fear as well um you're gonna have a patriot act sort of mark two or part two with all this COVID stuff and this is how it starts and i I mean, I talk a lot to my parents and they're probably sick of me talking about Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff, but it's like, this is how it starts. It starts with a voluntary app that you download to keep yourself safe. China's got the system where you're either green, orange or red. So depending on where you can travel and where you can go, then it becomes a voluntary operating system update. So everyone's got it in their phones anyway. Then it might become a bracelet like they've got in Hong Kong or Singapore. Yep. And then it does become a chip. And if you don't get the chip, you can't get the vaccine. If you don't have the chip, you can't go into the supermarket. And it's just this, yep. without getting completely off the rails, it's just this death of a thousand cuts that a lot of people can't see until it's too late. So Yeah, and, it, and it's, why, it's why Bitcoin is so important to, to tie it all back. It, it's opt-out. You know, it's, it's an opting out of what I refer to as the fiat fiasco. But also, it's an opt-out and a little bit of, of schmuck insurance, right? We know that the schmucks in charge are going to grab as much power as possible. And by having some portion of your wealth outside that system, you can protect yourself. And look, we've seen it everywhere. We've seen it in Zimbabwe. We've seen it in Argentina. We've seen it in Venezuela. And, and actually, we're seeing it right now in front of our faces in the good old U.S. of A. 
is they are systematically devaluing our currency to inflate away the debt. And it's like boiling a frog, right? If, if they turned it up all the way, we'd jump out of the water. But you turn it up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and the frog eventually becomes paralyzed and can't, can't jump out. And, you know, now they're talking about this morning, uh, you know, now they're saying, well, UBI is a good idea. We should just give everybody free money. Why would you do that? Why would you pay people to stay at home and be docile consumers, right? Unless all you wanted was, right, the, the, really the 1984-esque kind of, of world, which is very scary. And another reason why you got to opt out, because if, if they give you, you know, $2,000 a month of cash, but then devalue that cash, you become even more dependent on the state because you have no purchasing power. But that won't be cash. They'll be delivered to your digital wallet. There'll be a yes. digital dollar and there'll be expiration. So, for example, you got two weeks to spend it. So there's no incentive to save it or investment. You might, there might even be restrictions on how you can save it. So we're giving you this $2,000 UBI, but you have to spend it on this, this, or this. You don't really have a choice. Such a great insight. Really, really important insight. And, and you're absolutely right that that's uh, having control of, of how that money is utilized uh, is, is critical to, to overall government control. And that's why, again, my Bitcoin's so great is, is it encourages saving as opposed to spending and consumption. It actually is a you know, deflationary or disinflationary uh, monetary policy instead of an inflationary one. And, and it really does give you um, a voice in the sense of, of you will have better control of your wealth uh, with some portion of that wealth stored outside the system where it can't be under control. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. When we started this business in 2017, because we had people coming up to us saying, I want to buy Bitcoin. And we were like, okay, we want you to understand it. We want to, we want to educate you on it. And people were like, no, I just want to buy it. And yeah, people just want to jump on the FOMO wagon. Whereas now we're seeing people going, okay, I actually want to understand this thing. And we've seen some Wall Street um, people come around as well. Like some people that were, you know, Jared Dillian for one and a few others mm -hmm. who simply were very anti-Bitcoin are now, okay, I, I see this economic perspective. And that was my eureka moment as well, was the economic side of Bitcoin. Um, so just looking at that macro picture, Mark, um, when the tide goes out, everyone's swimming naked. What is your concern as to the global financial plumbing? I know Jeff Snyder's written a lot about the problems in the euro dollar market. Um, yep. There's this stuff. You mentioned the repo market, which to me seems like no one knows what the problem is, but we're throwing money at it. Well, I, I agree with you that when you say no one, meaning the average person has no earthly idea how bad it is and how close we were on a number of occasions in the last month to, to total breakdown. And, and it reminds me very much of, uh, there's a great story, David Zervos, who's uh, uh, worked actually for Bernanke at, at the Fed, said that, you know, he called them all into a room and he said, I've, I've seen the abyss and we ain't going there. And that's why we're going to pull out this, you know, 1930s idea, QE. Because remember, QE was not invented by Ben Bernanke. It was used in the 1930s you know, to stave off the Great Depression because we were an emerging market run by a gang. Nobody wanted to buy our debt, so we had to buy it ourselves. 
And, you know, people just, it's so funny. I would say Americans are like Notre Dame football fans, right? They remember a past that never was. Like Notre Dame football fans think we win the championship every year. We haven't won since 1988. But in the 40s, man, we were awesome. You know, we won every year because the coach went to Europe during World War II and got all the guys from Army and Navy to come back to Notre Dame as 28-year-olds. And they basically had a semi-pro team and went undefeated for four years. Well, that doesn't happen anymore, right? You don't get to do that anymore. So Americans believe that we've always been number one. Well, no, 1860 to 1920, you did not want to live necessarily in America. I mean, it was a great place to come and a great place to, to you know, get religious freedom and to be an entrepreneur, and, but it was tough. I mean, watch the movie Gangs of New York sometime and you'll see how tough it was. But we now only think it's always been awesome. And yet there was this time when you really had to you know, do these crazy things, meaning buy your own debt, and then ultimately retire it and do and have a do-over, a debt jubilee. So we're there today, right? We're there is the, if you look around the world, particularly over the last month, there were two instances where the response to COVID was so bad, right? So illogical and so um, poorly implemented that we we're on the verge of breaking the treasury market. I mean, literally a friend of mine called me up one Sunday night and said, hey, you still awake? I'm like, oh, yeah, of course I'm awake. It's only midnight. I'm a night owl. And she said, hey, I, I just heard that, that the treasury market just broke. And that was the day, you know, rates went from like 50 basis points on the 10 year up to like 1.2, oh, almost overnight. And literally the market was breaking. And that's when the Fed cut to zero and put that trillion dollar repo line out. Because again, people don't understand what a repo really means. And there were three big hedge funds, Citadel, Bridgewater, and Millennium, that were basically done. And they were going to be liquidated, and they had to be bailed out. So you, you had these, these multi-hundred billion dollar organizations that were levered 8, 10, 12 times doing this basis trading on treasuries, and things weren't going to settle. So we know what happens when that occurs is central bank just turns on the printer. And as long as you can just do that and nobody cries foul, then everything's good. So here we are in this situation where um, we've created lots and lots of, of new capital, M2 growing at, at double digit rates again, but something's not happening. We're not getting in any increase in velocity. So the money is not circulating. And you got this massive demand for uh, credit so everyone took out their credit line because they were worried about what was going to happen in the crisis, but then they just deposited it in the bank. They didn't actually you know, do anything with it. So there's been no increase in productive capacity. The money's not getting in the hands of people to spend it. So velocity is still shrinking. And so what you've got is this economic stagnation and everybody's worried about stagflation. I'm actually worried about deflation. Deflation is much more likely in a world with bad demographics too many 65 to 85 year old people, they don't spend a lot of money. And you can see that in Japan. Japan's been stagnant economically for two decades. And we're just 11 years behind Japan. Europe's nine years behind Japan. So that's coming. And then on top of that, you throw on massive debt and now you got zero interest rates. So the servicing of the debt is possible, but you couldn't possibly pay the debt back, right? With a lot of debt, you got four options. You can pay it back, can't happen. Western governments could never pay back the debt. You can default on it. Well, that ain't happening 
because then the people in power get kicked out of power. I was joking, you know, no Democrats, no Republicans, no left, no right, no conservatives, no liberals. There's in and out. And when you're out, you do or say whatever it takes to get in. And when you're in, you do or say whatever it takes to stay in. And that's why we're printing so much money, because the people who are in want to stay in both sides of the aisle. So uh, imagine Tea Party Republicans, what they're doing today. Right? They were going to balance the budget. Now we're going to set an all-time record for peacetime you know, budget deficit. They must be you know, going apoplectic. So, but they don't care because they're in. As long as they're in, they're happy. And so you got too much debt. You got debt. Oh, so, so the third thing you can do is you can restructure it. Restructuring is nearly as bad as defaulting. So you get kicked out of office. You're not going to do that. So the only thing left is to inflate it away. Well, how do you inflate it away? Well, you can't generate inflation in a deflationary world. Technology is deflationary and too many old people are deflationary. So you have to devalue the currency. And that's the only way. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's why Bitcoin in US dollars is a sure thing. Because you can't say that. Like, yeah, I can actually. Because if we increase the number of US dollars right, to an infinite level, and we know there's a finite number of Bitcoin, actually a decreasing amount of Bitcoin, it's got a deflationary, uh, some people lose it because they don't talk to you guys for security. And uh, so you end up with a deflating numerator and an infinite in, uh, uh, denominator, um, that means really high prices over the long term for, for a single Bitcoin. So I get pretty excited about the long term. Now the short term is just noise, right? Buyers and sellers. But over the long term, the amount of capital that's gonna flow into this opt-out insurance, I think is gonna be quite dramatic. So yeah, with that, Mark, so you mentioned devaluing currency. And um, I mean, Japan, I don't wanna use the word got away with it, but um, when Japan did this in the 90s, you had the roaring 90s in the US and Europe. So you had the rest of the world there to lift up Japan, whereas now and uh, post 2008, everyone's been devaluing their currency. It's been a race to the bottom. Race to the so bottom. when you're saying devaluing the currency, are you saying you're devaluing the purchasing power or you're trying to devalue it against other sovereign currencies? Uh, look, it's such a great point. And, and you're absolutely right. Japan got away with it in the sense of uh, there being other markets that they could export goods to. And actually, it, it made a lot of sense, right? They devalued their currency, made their goods, and everybody had a Sony Walkman, and everybody had, you know, Sony camera or, or you know, Sony entertainment pictures, et cetera. So that, that worked. In a race to the bottom, where every country is trying to devalue, now you have a problem. And this is why the 30s were so horrible. And that's why everybody talks about, oh, this is like 2008. Oh, this is like 2002. No, it's not. We're in 1930. It is 1930 right now. And we're on the verge because we're doing all the stupid stuff we did in 1930, like tariffs and like, you know, going against immigration. All of those things lead to nationalism, populism, and this deglobalization Right? We got globalization from 1860 to 1929, and then we deglobalized for 15 years, and we had the Great Depression. And so I think the same thing is possible here. COVID is the spark. Actually, I don't think it's the big problem. I think it's the response and this idiotic move to beggar thy neighbor. And to your point, how can everybody devalue at the same time and try to gain a piece of a shrinking pie? Well, you can't. The math doesn't work. So everybody loses. 
and purchasing power gets destroyed. And ultimately, you do get inflation in the things that you need, like the price of food, the price of gasoline. I say, you know, think of the price you paid for a gallon of gas, the, the, the lowest price. You know, for me, it was 31 cents. Now, today, it's only a buck 20, but that's still four times more. Is the gasoline four times better than it was 40 years ago? No, the dollar's worth less. And so the currency devaluation is the only way out. And ultimately, they're going to get away with it again, Japan, that is, and then Europe and then the US. But Japan will be the first to do the debt jubilee, right? They own 74% of ETFs and 56% of JGBs. When they get to 80 or 90% of JGBs, they just cancel them and they start over. And people say, oh, that could never happen. Well, it happened in 1864 in the UK. They gathered up all the tally sticks. They canceled the debt. They went from single entry accounting to dual entry accounting. They started over. And we're going to do the same thing. And the cool thing is, back to Bitcoin and back to dual, triple entry accounting and blockchain, we're going to go from dual entry accounting. We're going to wipe that out. We're going to start over, do a debt jubilee. And then we're going to use triple entry accounting. And it's all going to be automated all around this blockchain uh, protocol stack. But I don't feel strongly about that, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this is the beauty of Bitcoin. And this is why I've written about this. And I say it's more important to realize the time that Bitcoin was released, 2008, and in the Genesis block where Satoshi Nakamoto made reference to the Guardian and you know, the, yep. um, the banks being bailed out. And yeah, back then, governments could have easily um, basically, you know, had a 51% attack and overtaken the network, but they're too distracted with a GFC. And we're going to see the same thing here. I think eventually yep. people will, as you say, seek a decentralized alternative as they have in, you know, for lack of a better term, your lesser developing nations, because to them, you know, we can wake up and yeah, money I put in my bank yesterday is there today. I take that for granted. A lot of countries don't have that privilege. So that's why they have to seek something like Bitcoin. How far I think Lebanon, Lebanon last week basically said you had, you know, 36 hours to withdraw money and then yeah. no more. Pretty scary stuff. And that's, you know, that's one of the fallacies of banking, right? Is people say, you know, they, they put their money in the bank and they think it's still their money. It's not your money, mm -hmm. right? It's the bank's money. Now you have an IOU and that IOU has value, but it's not your money, right? It ends up on the bank balance sheet, right? It's not, it's not on yours. I mean, they have a liability to give it back to you, but it's still, it's, it's now their asset, not yours. And, uh, you know, we all forget that, you know, the Cypriots uh, woke up one day a number of years ago and 74, 75% of their money was gone through a bail-in. And um, yeah. that is one of the biggest reasons why having a, at least a portion, and my big thing is get off zero, right? Zero allocation to crypto and, and to Bitcoin is the wrong number right? Full stop. It's the wrong number. Is it one? Is it three? Is it five? Is it 10? I don't really care. It's a number, not zero. And if you want to start with one, go to one. If you want to go to three, go to three. If you want to go to five, go to five. But you can't have zero. That's just a foolish number. And over time, I think that number grows. Um, and again, I'm not saying we have to burn the whole other system down. It may do it itself, but you need to be prepared for at least a portion of your capital to be that, you know, we'll call it running money. Uh, that that uh, you know preserves your ability 
to get out of trouble if things get you know really negative. And look, things may not get really horrible, but they might. It's non-zero. Yeah, and this yes. is why I really, um, so I really like the analogies of um, comparing Bitcoin and gold because gold is an insurance policy in that okay, you might not have, you don't have any yield, you may have had very small capital growth, but when you have these crises, you're you know you haven't devalued your currency and you haven't lost anything in equity, so you can then come in and buy some bargains. It's that opportunity that it presents down the line. Yeah, I mean to that point on gold, I mean there are lots of stories of people escaping lots of bad stuff from literally the Holocaust to persecution, religious dictators using gold, right? Using their earrings, using their gold coins, lots of examples. And look, for 5,000 years, which is a long time, 5,000 years is a long time, an ounce of gold bought a fine man's suit. It's pretty amazing, right? It's been the perfect store of value. Why? Because it's scarce metallurgically, it is scarce. It has some other metallurgical problems properties that are really cool too, but its stock to flow ratio is really consistent. You know, the amount that's mined every year roughly equals the amount that's used for commercial uses or is lost or in jewelry. And so the net flow is just not very high. Now, the cool thing is we have this, this Bitcoin thing, digital gold, and it has all the properties of gold with a couple that are better, right? All the gold in the world fits into Olympic sized swimming pools and it's really heavy, and it's really hard to transport, and it's really all the Bitcoin in the world fits in my phone. Now, I don't have all of it in the world, obviously, but it would all fit in my phone. And the other cool thing is divisibility. There's one of my favorite movies is A Knight's Tale. It's about jousting and Heath Ledger, you know, God rest his soul. Great movie. There's a scene where he wins this golden um, ram uh, as his award, and he needs to pay off a debt and he like bangs it on the table and breaks off a leg and says, go do whatever you do with that. That's a really inexact way to divide your gold. Whereas with Bitcoin, I can give you, you know, one Satoshi, a hundred millionth of, of a Bitcoin. So um, the key is it, it has these digital properties for the digital age and it has all the properties of gold. And as of, you know, a couple of weeks from now, when we have the halving, it's going to be more scarce on a stock to flow ratio than gold itself. So scarce assets are very valuable. Like the number one performing asset in the last decade, everyone thinks it's Bitcoin, it's actually not, it's collectible Porsches. Why? Because there's only three people in the world that buy collectible Porsches. Jay Leno, um, John Shirley, the number three guy at Microsoft, and uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And they basically will pay whatever it takes to win that damn car. So they can put it in a garage and buff it with a rag, which I think is kind of a waste. But those collectible Porsches have compounded like, I think it's 7,000% a year, more than anything. But that's a unique example, but it goes to scarcity. Scarce assets, fine wine, collectible art, um, you know, vineyards in, in uh, Napa Valley or in the Chateau of, of France or Chateau region of France. So um, all of those things that are scarce become more valuable when fiat is created out of nowhere. And so we're sitting in this beautiful place today where if you can own scarce assets and if you can have the discipline of, of buying those scarce assets when they go on sale, which they occasionally do, Black Thursday, great example. It says, oh, Bitcoin's dead. It went down 40%. Well, let's examine why it went down 40%. Well, 
in a liquidation, truly a liquidation, and we were on the verge of massive liquidations across hedge funds, across banks, across individuals, huge amounts of, of uh, money on margin, uh, investments on margin. Why did Bitcoin get crushed? Because in a liquidation, you're forced to sell what you can sell, not what you want to sell. And if your small cap stock was down 90%, the bank doesn't want that. They want their money. So you have to sell the thing that's not down a lot, which was Bitcoin. And then when you start selling, more people start selling. And eventually you had Black Thursday. So now we've regathered all of those losses from, you know, recouped all those losses from Black Thursday because the fundamental owners, the people that want to own that asset didn't change. It was the speculative owners on the margin who were dabbling, but who were forced to sell those, those good assets at, the, at bad prices. And that's true of every correction, right? In a liquidation, a true liquidation, some of the best investments I've made in my career have been buying good assets from sellers who are in trouble and are being forced to sell their good assets rather than their bad assets. Yeah, you remind me of that saying that um, it's the only place when there's a fire sale, everyone runs outside the door. Yeah, exactly. Only business in the world. When, when things go on sale, people run out of the store. Every other business in the world, right? You own a sporting goods store, you own a, a grocery store, you put things on sale, people run in. Not in investing, they run out. And the cheaper the price, the further they run. Um, one thing I'd love to pick your brain on, Mark, is um, the U.S. dollar. Because I know um, yeah. you were bearish on the price of the U.S. dollar um, when the big buff George Washington appeared on the cover of The Economist. Yep. Where are you placing it these days? What's your view on the U.S. dollar now? You know, I, I go back and forth, and I'm and I'm you know I'm close friends with you know Raul and and uh, Brent and and um, you know all the guys, Jeff on on the you know Jeff more so from our macro voices together, but, but, you know, Brent with his dollar milkshake theory. And, and I, I have, I have, you know, compassion for this idea that there's a dollar shortage and that all these emerging countries that have issued dollar denominated debt are scrambling for dollars. And because of oil prices being so low, there's just fewer dollars around the world because the petrodollar system is, is caving uh, as we speak. So I have some, some uh, compassion for that viewpoint. Although I think long term, look, the dollar's been in secular decline since 1987. It's a long time, uh, and it's still in secular decline. Now, whether it's in a cyclical bull market right now, obviously it is. Uh, it's rallied from you know low 80s back up to to 100 ish in the DXY. I think the challenge with the DXY is it's really just euros and yen and dollars, and they're all devaluing against themselves. So is is the dollar the best of of a bad trio? Yeah, probably. Um, and so that doesn't have as much information content as the broad based dollar index. And that actually has been strong lately because the emerging market, you know, problems, the REI is getting crushed again. And the, you know, the fragile five, the ones with big current account uh, deficits. But one thing that's changed is there are a whole bunch of countries that have gone from current account deficits to current account surpluses. So they're not as fragile as they used to be. And so I do think that while the dollar probably doesn't collapse as quickly as I thought it was going to, um, I think it probably doesn't rise very much. You know, it's basically flattish over the last 18 months, and it's basically flattish. Uh, it was at 103 um, 
after the first rate rise uh, almost three years ago now, uh, and it's still at a, you know under 103. Now, if it breaks 103, all bets are off for a short period of time to the upside. But uh, I think it probably doesn't break 103, and I probably think ultimately we end up materially lower because at the end of the day, um, if we're going to actually do all the things that people are talking about, like you know onshoring jobs, uh, manufacturing jobs, and trying to you know become more of a manufacturing economy again, you got to have a weaker dollar, not stronger. And in a beggar thy neighbor world, uh, where everyone's trying to devalue their currency, we're going to have to devalue faster. So. Uh, I do think long-term the dollar is is likely to go down and, and we're printing, printing, or printing lots of them. So I think that's another reason they go down, uh, which is another reason why I think Bitcoin does better relative to the dollar over the coming years. Uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that's the only irrefutable law of economics is supply and demand. Yeah. Yep. And look, supply is going to rise. There's no question. And uh, they have no choice. And interest rates are going to stay low for a very, very long time. Uh, which is going to put further pressure on printing press. Um, growth is going to be low for a very long time, further pressure on the printing press. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I I do struggle with um, why should equities rally um, because interest rates are low, because low interest rates are a sign of economic weakness, not strength. And it means your future earnings are going to be lower, not higher. That makes no sense that you pay a higher multiple for that but I've been wrong. So people seem to want to pay a higher multiple. Um, but I think, I think it actually isn't people. And I, I misspoke. It's machines, right? Machines are now 80 plus percent of trading every day. Machines don't have judgment. They just do what the rules say. And uh, I always go back to my eighth grade computer instructor. I'm old enough to, to computers were not a big deal when I was growing up. But my eighth grade computer instructor said a computer is as smart as a screwdriver. I never forgot that. And it's true. And uh, it was funny, I, I tweeted somebody last night, they said, you know, you know, we're pretty close to the, the end of days, you know, where the machines take over and this dystopian future and, you know, the, the whole matrix thing, I'm like, we can unplug the machines, we have hands, we, we can unplug it. <laughs> so I, I don't know why we're so afraid. I mean, we, we could actually stop it. It's funny when people talk about that and everyone talks about, you know, marketing terms like artificial intelligence and neural networks and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, actually, it's not really artificial intelligence. It's just a series of code. And uh, for example, if you've got an air conditioner room with a sensor and, you know, there's no one in the room after 10 minutes, the sensor says, hey, there's no one there. And it tells the air conditioner to go off. That's not artificial intelligence. Someone actually programmed that into 50 yes. lines of code. So uh, I get really annoyed when people mention AI. Yeah. Well, and you know, to your point, Gordon, 90% of what's called AI is not um, artificial or intelligent. Because um, again, it's not artificial, it's real. I mean, it's code, as you said, and it's not really that intelligent. Um, now, there's 10% of AI that, that's real, right? If you can have a machine that can actually learn without human intervention and code itself, all right, that's pretty interesting. But again, if that gets out of control, Pull the plug um, before it gets too bad. <laughs> Takes all of our jobs. Uh, it's a case of life imitating art, isn't it? Thinking of um, Mr. Robot and Matrix at this point. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny too, right? It's, we could say, well, you know, an algorithm could, could have this interview, but I always say no chance because an algorithm's not as crazy as I am and going off on all these <laughs> tangents that, that don't mean anything to anybody. So 
it's more entertaining maybe, but uh, the algos would, would just talk about, you know, the questions you asked. Yeah, absolutely. Although I think there are a lot of algorithms and bots writing uh, blog posts nowadays because a lot of the things that I read are like, yeah, I'm pretty sure a human didn't write that. That's just a mumbo jumble of uh, verbs and adverbs and nouns yes. and whatever. Hundred percent true, particularly in in uh, financial media. Um, yeah, and you can tell it right to your point. You know, you can see where they pulled a paragraph from one place and tried to, you know, combine it with something else. And and what's missing is is that human judgment, that human intuition to say that point's important, that point's not. Um, but you know, I, I do think. Sam, I'm actually not feeling we're going to go dystopian. I actually think we're going to you know, persevere and, and overcome, and, and then we'll get through this crisis. Uh, we'll realize that you know we have these leaders who aren't leading, and they're just trying to you know take these these uh, powers that they shouldn't have. And uh, good news is we do at least for now still have a democracy, uh, and we can get rid of them, and we can you know put people in place that uh, maybe have different ambitions and different goals and. Uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm Pollyanna-ish about that, but uh, I'm not going to give up yet. Yeah, you mentioned that, in, um, I think it's about 12 or 18 months ago, Stan Druckenmiller did that interview on Real Vision, and he said, I'm fighting the Fed and I'm fighting bots. It's the only time in my career I ever thought of retiring. And I started listening to uh, Market Wizards again. That, that was in the 80s. And you had guys back then saying how computers have changed everything now. Uh, it's such a good point. Look, you know, in the 80s, uh, there were definitely, you know, major uh, investors who, you know, Peter Lynch and others who, who were lamenting the fact that it was too tough to do their job against, you know, the, the computerized day trading stuff. Uh, and then in 2000, right, there's the famous Julian Robertson letter saying, look, I, I, I'm shutting down my fund because I, I don't get it, right? I don't understand how these companies, you know, can go up. You know, MicroStrategy, right, was a stock worth $3, traded as high as $330 before it finally went back to three. And, you know, he just, he, he got out, you know, five months early. Uh, if he would have stuck around, he would have made a killing because ultimately value did matter again. And uh, this too shall pass. Now, I, I do think, one thing that, that isn't going to pass is, is we're not going to go back to, you know, specialists on the New York Stock Exchange and, and lots of individuals uh, trading. Passive will have a role. And uh, unfortunately, that's going to cause some stress because, look, rule-based algorithms aren't allowed to think. You know, I call them dumb, not unintelligent, but rule-based, meaning, you know, they have to buy Hormel Foods that is ne has negative unit growth. Uh, at at thirty times earnings, because it's in the index. So everybody who puts money in that index, they have to buy that. That makes no sense long term, but it makes sense in in the short term if you're following a rule, or if you have an IPO that comes out at you know in in home builders. There was an IPO that came out with a sixty PE. Now home builder should never trade above a ten PE, but that home builder had to go in the index, so it had to be purchased. You know, no questions asked. And then you got these low vol ETFs that buy stocks just based on their volatility. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, really, as a, as a strategy, because that doesn't have anything to do with fundamentals or cash flows. It just has to do with the volatility of prices, which is all you need to do there is have a you know, small float stock that's manipulated by a couple market makers. Or, or it could be Tesla and just have low volatility day-to-day um, -day because of, of price you know, interventions. So all kinds of stuff that 
um, is a little bit nonsensical, but we have to deal with it today and we have to kind of get through it to get to, you know, what I think will be a better outcome in the future. But um, and I think active management makes a comeback. I think um, these alternative assets, these digital assets uh, start to dominate. Look, in the long term, every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity will be digital. It'll be traded digitally, you know, across our wallets instead of having brokerage accounts and banks and trusted third parties. And, uh, you know, what's really cool about it when you think about it is the incredible custom innovation and the number of potential asset classes. Instead of real estate as an asset class, we can have New York real estate. Forget New York real estate. We can have Soho real estate. Forget Soho. We can have Soho apartments on the left side of the street if we want. And we'll be able to create, you know, things that they are uninvestable, like, you know, shares of fine art or, you know, uh, proportional shares of, of iconic real estate. Uh, all of it will be tokenized. All of it will be traded. Uh, it'll be frictionless. And we'll be able to have a much more, uh, efficient portfolio and uh, ultimately spend more time producing wealth than managing wealth because that's when I think the algos will make sense because when you have lots of options to build a diversified portfolio and all the algo does is keep you constantly rebalanced better than a human would because it has no emotion, that'll actually be a good outcome. I find uh, non-fudgeable tokens uh, fascinating and uh, we won't go into a rabbit hole of that, but it it's just just thinking about that um, because we you know going back to our previous discussion, we've got protocols and software and technology like email TCPIP. As yep. an investor, you can obviously invest in those uh, liquid currencies, but you can also invest in the companies surrounding it. So uh, you couldn't invest in email, but you can invest in Gmail, Yahoo, and whatever. Uh, but with all the you know utility tokens, security tokens, non fungible tokens, as an investor. Uh, what are you? What are the differences between, say, investing in uh, Ethereum versus in, investing in a uh, Ethereum-based company? Just an example. Yeah, really, really important point. So, you know, we run uh, at More Creek Digital. We run venture capital funds that invest in the companies that are building the infrastructure around these these markets, whether it be around Bitcoin for exchanges and things, or whether it's Ethereum-based product development um, or DeFi things like that. Um, so, you know, we believe in investing in the businesses themselves and the equity, but then we also believe in investing in the protocols. And, and, you know, I look at, at Bitcoin as I was, I used to use the, the Saudi analogy, but now it's not so politically correct, but you know, it's like the King, you know, Bitcoin's the King, Ethereum's the crown prince. And then there's all the other princes that hate each other. So there's 6,000 princes in Saudi and they all hate each other. Um, but you know, if you think through cryptocurrencies, right? There's, there's about a dozen of them and most of them aren't really that useful, but a handful of them I think are interesting and some of the privacy coins. And then you've got all these utility tokens and then ultimately we'll have fungible security tokens. That's where I think it gets really exciting. The utility tokens were just those, you know, funded pre-seed stage venture capital. Most of them not very good, but boy, the ones that survive, they could be hundred baggers. Because if you actually do create an interesting technology, it could, it could go a long way. And that, I think, that's not our expertise. You know, we're not techies. I'm a financial services guy. Uh, but if, if people have technological expertise to really dive into those projects, I think you actually could make some good money in, in ICO, in the ICO world, in the utility token world. Um, what I like is the security token, fungible tokens that will eventually 
uh, occur and whether it's, you know, collectible cars or fine wine or art or real estate properties or just shares of Apple, uh, I want to own them all. And ultimately, I want to own them in, in portfolios that are, are a little more uh, rules-based and a little more um, algorithmic, uh, but I want them to be based on this basic fundamental premise of diversified portfolio wins because it reduces your volatility long-term and you want to own uncorrelated assets. That's why I love Bitcoin. It's, it's the one asset that's truly uncorrelated to stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. Whereas, you know, we saw in March, everything correlated to one, everything went down, actually including Bitcoin. But since then, um, you know, Bitcoin's back to being about 0.15 correlated over the long term and is a great diversifier in a you know, stock bond cash portfolio. So ultimately, this, this movement to uh, building out the, the, the tokenized economy or the tokenized world I think is really important. I think it's going to take time. Um, and that's why we're investing both in the venture capital around building out that world, but also run an index vehicle that, that will invest in the, the tokens themselves. Um, and just on that, are you also investing in, say, for example, the digital assets? And uh, for example, you mentioned real estate. Are there any other projects that you're excited about? Yeah, you know, so to this point, it's, it's been tough. You know, we've looked at a lot of projects. Um, said so we've done a little bit in the decentralized finance space. Uh, we've done a little bit in the protocols themselves, although that has been, been challenging because it really just comes down to, you know, right now, Bitcoin and Ethereum really at the top of the heap. But we looked at a, at a handful of other uh, protocols. Um, we own a little bit of, of a handful of them, but, but it's, it's been harder than we thought it was probably going to be. Um, you know, projects that we look at said most of what we do on the venture side are companies, you know, equities in companies that are building either financial services products, exchanges, tools, data, um, you know, anything that is, is truly infrastructure. And, you know, our biggest investment uh, company called Figure, you know, they're basically creating the DTCC of, you know, the digital age and are trading, you know, lending securities, securitized loans uh, on that platform on, on the Providence blockchain. Uh, we like BlockFi, right? It's another big investment of ours, um, basically creating a blockchain-based finance company. Don't call it a bank, even though it does exactly what a bank does. Uh, they hit, take deposits and pay interest, uh, make loans, uh, but don't call it a bank. Um, and uh, we'll probably invest in a digital startup bank that's, that's getting started. So um, that uh, Caitlin Long's working on. So uh, lots of interesting stuff out there. Um, but at the end, what I, what, another thing I like about it is we're not inventing anything really new. We're taking new technology and applying it to old businesses. I always call it the difference between big E entrepreneurship and little E entrepreneurship. Big E entrepreneurs take lots of risk, they invent new things, and when they're successful, wildly successful. But most of them fail. Little e-entrepreneurship, you're just basically taking new technology, applying it to old things that are proven, and you probably don't have as much upside, but you have a higher hit ratio, and you can, I think, make a lot more money. Um, now, we do a little bit of both, and I've had success, thankfully, in, in backing some big e-entrepreneurs over the years. Uh, that's not my forte, I'm a little e-guy. 
I like taking, you know, old ideas and, and bringing them or taking old ideas and applying new stuff to them. Um, and I think that's where we're probably going to make most of our incremental allocations today, because we do think this is just an operating system that will help us migrate to this, this internet of, of value. And without, uh, without being, uh, without belittling you, is it simply a notion of throwing 10 things against the wall? Two of them are massive runners, five of them are so, so, and, the others are duds or is it a more no, look, strategic? It's not, it's not belittling at all. And look, the nature of venture capital um, is, is an interesting business, right? Some say it's just throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. And we're not quite in that space. And, and I have a lot of admiration. You know, people uh, pick on people like Tim Draper and say, oh, he's just spray and pray. You know, he just, he just buys a hundred things and, and hopes, you know, two of them do well. No, Tim is is a spray. So he does do the spray part. So he'll invest in a hundred things, but then he's amazing at picking the handful half dozen that you want to really bet big on. And so he'll, he'll add on to the winners and, and he'll let the ones go away. And one of the problems, and this is endemic globally, but really America, I call it the participation trophy problem is we're all socialized into thinking that we have to be good at everything. And that everything has to be a winner and everybody has to be a winner and everybody gets a trophy. So take, for example, if you had a kid and your kid comes home from school with four A's and a D, what do we all do? We all hire a tutor. We spend all their time trying to fix the D. Nope. They should drop the D and focus on the A. And we should get them tutors to help them really, really, really get good at the A's and forget about trying to be good at the D because you don't have to be good at everything. And I think the same thing's true in venture is we will put now we're not, you know, 60 or 100, but we'll make 30 investments. And we think that about, you know, a handful of them, five, six, seven of them are going to be meaningfully sized investments, 10, 15, 20% of our fund type investments. And, and we do that because we think that somebody's got something really special. Then we'll make 20 small investments where we don't really know if it's going to be great and we're not sure about the entrepreneur or, you know, whatever, but, but we're willing to try and, and get a toehold and, and build a relationship from that. You're going to have two or three that emerge that you're going to put more money into. And then in the middle, you'll have a handful of investments where you think there's something good. Um, and you're pretty sure something's good, but you're probably going to have a one X or a two X or a three X kind of outcome. Now, if you think about that whole portfolio, absolutely two or three are going to be the big winners and drive the returns. No question. That's the way venture works. And the, the thing for me is I want to have a bunch of zeros. People say, well, what do you mean? Why'd you want a zero? Well, if you don't have zeros, then you can't have 10 baggers. So the people who invest never wanting to lose money are going to end up with, eh. they're going to end up with oatmeal. Because if, if everything is not going to lose money, maybe you, you, know, you get a 0.6, a 0.7, a 0.8, I, or even worse, if you're trying to get one, you know, get your money back every time, you're just not going to have enough upside to, because eventually you're going to get things wrong and they are going to go to zero and you're not going to have enough upside because you're, you're, you're taking all that upside off by hedging out your downside risk. So I like having a handful of things that go away. I like a handful of things that go up a lot. I want to back them with more capital. And so uh, it's, no fence taken at all at the, hey, do you throw 10 against the wall, hope to stick? And 
you know, not pay attention to five of them. Yep. I definitely don't want to spend time on the things that aren't going to work. And that's sad, right? You want everybody to be successful, but they're not all going to be successful. And there are lots of great examples where an entrepreneur tries something, they're not successful. Then they come back with another idea. You back them again and they become successful because they learned a lot from the failures. In fact, I have on my desk, I have this great little card and it says failure changes for the better, success for the worst from Seneca the Younger. So 2,600 year old advice, still true today. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and, and, and just a, a curious question. Are you, how hands-on are you? Are you requesting seats on a board? Are you having like weekly Skype meetings to see, you know, if yep. the co-founders are doing the right thing or are, are you hands-off or? No, it's a great question. So again, there's three of us partners, Pomp, Jason, and myself. Um, we have uh, three board seats that we, you know, sit on. Uh, those are our largest investments. Um, we have advisor uh, seats, I think, on two where we don't have to be active board members. But then the rest, you know, we have small investments and they could develop into things where we want to take an active role. Um, we still will help them, right? If a founder calls and says, hey, I'm having, you know, issues with hiring, you know, Jason built a business where he hired, you know, 1,400 people. So he can go talk to somebody about, hey, here's some hiring tips. Or, you know, I, if somebody says, hey, I've got some questions about cap structure. Well, you know, I've invested in a lot of businesses over the years that have to deal with different capital structures. Or, hey, I'm having some troubles with digital marketing. You know, Pomp's got a really nice marketing machine built. So each of us has expertise that we will, you know, try to add value where we can. But none of us thinks we're the founder. You know, it's funny. I went to Silicon Valley in 2000, right at the peak of the bubble. And, you know, we were big venture investors, um, both at Notre Dame where I was and then at, at UNC uh, where I had, had, had uh, just left to go to and asked 40 different venture funds, what makes great outcomes, right? Is it, you know, the entrepreneurs? Is it the business? Is it the capital? Is it you, the venture capitalist? And only two out of 40 gave the right answer vast majority of the venture capitalists said, oh, of course, it's us. It's the venture capitalists because we're active and we, we coach these founders. Only two, Benchmark and Sequoia, two of the most famous and most successful said, are you kidding? It's the founders. It's all the founders. None of that other stuff matters, right? You can have a really bad product market fit. If they have a great founder, they can fix the product market fit. Us, we're there to provide capital and maybe some guidance and maybe a board. But if we don't have good founders, it doesn't matter. And, and that's, that's pretty cool because those were two very successful firms that could have been very arrogant and said, well, of course it's us, but they got it. And I think the same way is we don't think it's us. We're there if you need us. We're there if you want us. And we're happy to take a board seat. And we're happy to contribute. But at the end of the day, we back great founders and we want those founders to run those businesses. Yeah, we use that exact same analogy when we're explaining Bitcoin to people. When you say, what would you rather, a good idea or a good people? And we say, you look at the core developers working on Bitcoin, you know, with Dr. Adam Beck, Peter Woolley, all these guys, and they're working there voluntarily. And it's, you know, um, yeah. it's like we like to explain Linux operating system to people. Most people don't even know what Linux is, don't know it runs yeah. the internet. Yeah. And it was developed by people on their spare time voluntarily. Yep. Some of them have a full-time salary for Blockstream, but yeah, we, we, we get your point. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, and that, and that's why I think that perhaps investing, feel free to disagree, but I think investing in crypto is perhaps a little bit different because with a traditional business, yeah, you're looking at the founders, you're looking at the people and the same with the crypto business, but you've also got certain layers. So for example, if you're looking at a company who is based on a particular token, that token is say based on Ethereum, Ethereum might be having some scaling issues. Ethereum's going to Ethereum 2.0. There are like all these, I'm not saying they're insurmountable or they're um, too risky, but there's sort of all these different layers of things that you may have the most amazing founders, but there may be some technical issues with, for example, Ethereum scaling that are completely out of the control of that particular business. It's a really, really great point. And, and I, I think that's true of, of most technology businesses, right? Where, where the technology is a little bit out of your control. Um, even if, even if you're building the core technology, right? I mean, there are going to be competitors, there are going to be changes. You know, think about the people who were, were working on, you know, the, the CDMA technology for cell phones and somebody else came up with something different. So, uh, but I, I totally take that point. Uh, at the end of the day, um, companies that, that address big problems uh, and big markets and, and have creative solutions and, and bring good people to bear are, are likely to be successful. Now, can things go wrong? Of course. But, but ultimately, for us, um, when we think about the protocols themselves versus the companies, there's a different risk-reward that we're looking at. Uh, we look at the protocols as uh, being you know, very high uh, potential reward, very asymmetric, but not, you know, there's a non-zero risk of, of a total wipeout, right? That literally someone could engineer, I don't think it will happen, but someone could engineer a better solution than, than Bitcoin for digital gold. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's possible. Just like when Linux was starting out, you know, we were investors in Red Hat um, with block uh, with um, um, Benchmark Capital, and when they first suggested, it was right here in my backyard. When they first suggested that we're going to start a company with a free product. How how's that work again? Right? How do we make money? They figured out how to make money. They sold it to IBM for a lot of billions. So, um, but there was a time when Linux might not have been the winner, and some other you know system could have come up. I love the thing that, you know, COVID is, has uh, exposed the fundamental flaw that much of, of U.S. underbelly is still run on COBOL. You know, my dad could probably still go help uh, code that, but most people don't even know what COBOL is, let alone Fortran. Um, but that type of, of infrastructure has survived for 70 plus years now maybe somebody's going to come up with a better solution, maybe make a lot of money out of it. Um, but will somebody come up with a better solution for Ethereum or for scaling or will lightning work better or will we come up with something different? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something is going to uh, replace Visa and MasterCard payment rails. Someone is going to figure out how to do, you know, uh, overseas transactions and not have to pay standard charter a fee because the Rothschilds have a treaty from 400 years ago. So all those things are going to happen, um, but uh, you can't be sure. And that's why we do diversify our bets a little bit uh, to try to make sure we, we have, you know, some winners that'll counteract some of the things that, that don't work out. 
That's a really good point, Mark, because I was, I was actually talking to one of my developer friends today about this exact same thing. And uh, I was disagreeing because um, I was basically saying it's more iterative. So for example, you may have a Bitcoin or a Bitcoin clone or whatever that is slightly better. You know, maybe it's slightly faster and maybe provides slightly better security. But as Faris said, all the Bitcoin developers are not going to jump ship for a product that's 2% better or 5% better. It's got yep. such of a network effect, whatever. So yeah, it is iterative and it's, it's extremely unlikely that um, someone's going to replace Bitcoin as a store of values. Someone's going to replace Ethereum. And that's why all these Ethereum killers have come on. Oh, look at EOS, look at Tron, look at Neo. And they've all tried. And maybe some of them are technically slightly better than Ethereum. But they're not, they, they just don't have the net worth effect. They're starting from zero. So now, Paul Romer, you know, won the Nobel Prize two years ago for the theory of increasing returns. And uh, he talks about this, right? And, and, you know, it's funny, I read his paper when I was in business school in the 80s. And uh, I've been saying for, you know, coming up on 40 years that he was going to win the Nobel Prize. It took a long time for him to finally win it. Um, but this idea that, that the best technology wins, never right? It's the technology that gets the best network effect the fastest, full stop. And that's true of every technology in history. And you're right, incremental or iteratively better doesn't do it. It has to be fundamentally better to displace the pain and suffering of making a change. And, and think about it with habits, right? right? We all know that we should eat right and exercise. We all know that. Right? There's lots of evidence that if you do that, you live a longer, happier, healthier life, lower expenses, less you know, money on healthcare and drugs. We all know that. And we all do different levels of it because the incremental pain and suffering of making a change is either too high or too low, depending on our, our risk tolerance. And uh, someone described once to me of it's different. It's like when uh, very few people run out of gas in their car. Why? Because the impact is immediate and very deleterious, right? You stop and you can't get where you're going. Not with your body, you don't just stop, right? If you constantly abuse your body, it doesn't just stop well, until it does, but it's not like the you know, out of gas light goes off and you go fill up. It's, hey, uh, I'm you know, doing all this stuff and I get heart disease or I get diabetes and then, you know, Instead of living to be 85, I lived to be 65. Well, that sucks, but you didn't get the warning light, you know, every year or every week to go do the right thing. Whereas with your car, you don't run out of gas. No one runs out of gas. Not no one, but, but very few people. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned um, habits because the QWERTY keyboard that we have today is based on the old typewriter. And that yep. was not based for efficient design. It was because if you put, if you spread out, all the keys, you found that the, uh, the metal keys jammed. So we didn't, and we didn't change the keyboard to efficient design. We just kept the old system. Yeah. yeah it's too hard to, to, to learn a new one, even though we'd be faster typists. Well, not, not me, but I'm still hunting back. <laughs> um, but anyway. Well, we're coming up in the 90 minute mark. And um, Mark, I just want to say, I'm, we're very grateful for you. Um, I've been following your work for years now. And just from a personal point of view, I just want to say I'm, I'm very grateful that you've been around and providing a lot of free advice. Um, I know people in your positions, advice comes very expensive. But uh, from a personal point of view, I got into swing trading in 2014, gave me headaches for the next few years. So 
people like yourselves, Raul and Eric Townsend, Microwise have literally kept me sane in these markets. So thank you well, very I much. I appreciate you saying that. And uh, it, it's, it's really my pleasure. I, I, uh, you know, I got onto Twitter by accident, literally my, my uh, the PR firm that worked with us said, hey, you should do this. I'm like, what the heck? Why do I want to show pictures of where I'm eating dinner? And like, no, 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 you don't understand. So now I get it. And, and what I love is I built this, this global community of, of friends and, and colleagues. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's just really amazing to think that because of, of uh, these relationships, here we are, you know, one guy sitting in New Zealand, another in Vietnam, and, and a guy in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, having a conversation about big picture topics and uh, sharing information that then will get shared around the world uh, through the podcast. And, and it's very powerful and very, uh, very gratifying to, to, to one, you know, to be uh, someone that people would want to hear from. So I, I appreciate that very much. And uh, I am glad that uh, we had the chance to, to get together and, and spend time talking about some, some really important topics. Thank you. And uh, just you want to tell everyone your Twitter handle because I know you're very active on Twitter. Yeah, so I'm, I'm at Mark Yusko, so M-A-R-K-Y-U-S-K-O. And uh, then we're at Morgan Creek Cap, C-A-P.com on the website. And uh, pretty easy to find. Um, I don't do email well, but I do do DM. So if people are interested, just uh, reach out. And uh, really, again, appreciate being on the show and look forward to chatting again sometime. Thank you very much, Mark. We're Thank really you very much, Mark. Appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. All right, be good. Thank you. All right, and, and when we get out of when we get out of uh, lockdown, I got to come see both of you. So, <laughs> absolutely, very cool. weather's perfect. I live. If you like your wines, I live in the vineyard area, so um, we'll show you. Oh, around. all right, I'm in. I am in. All right, guys, yeah. be well. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Cheers. Take care. Do you want to learn how to safely buy and securely store your bitcoins? Coincompass.com is running a free two-hour webinar on Sunday, 31st of May. To register and for more details, visit coincompass.com forward slash webinar. Thanks for watching or listening. Please visit coincompass.com slash free to register to our socials and discover other free content. Subscribing, liking, and following helps this content remain ad-free. Until next time.